Well, if you would, uh, please open your Bibles to Matthew 24. Our passage for this morning, for the third and final week in a row, is Matthew 24, 9 to 14. And let's begin once again by reading this passage in its context, starting back in verse 1 and continuing through verse 14. One more time, the passage is Matthew 24, 9 to 14, and we're starting in verse 1. Matthew writes, Jesus left, Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. In this passage, Jesus describes the events leading up to and including the first half of a period of time known as the Great Tribulation. This is a time immediately preceding the end of the age and the beginning of the long-hoped-for millennium, which is described in Daniel as a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. In Zephaniah 1, 15-16, it's described as a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. In Joel 2, 2, Joel calls it a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And in Joel 2, 31, he calls it simply great and awesome, or perhaps more literally great and terrifying. No doubt it is a terrible day, one that is rightly to be feared because of the great distress that will come upon the earth in that day. And over the past several weeks, I think we've gotten a glimpse as to why this is the case. Since we first started in Matthew 24, I've been trying to slowly piece together a panorama of the Bible's depiction of the end. And I think this hit a climax last week when we discussed the conditions and the rationale of the Great Tribulation. We've seen, for instance, that this is going to begin as a time of unprecedented persecution for Christians. As the Antichrist increasingly ascends to power, he's going to force Israel into a covenant that transforms them into a satellite of his growing empire. It would seem that this loss of independence likely sparks a time of renewed nationalistic fervor in Israel because Jesus says that at that time, Jews will begin handing Christians over to the synagogues once again, just like they did in the first century. They'll even deliver them up to kings and to governors, likely charging them with insurrection on the count of the Christians' allegiance to Jesus over Caesar. 
As this persecution swells, there will be a time of great apostasy. Jesus says that many will fall away under the heat of this persecution. And yet, at the same time, God will empower those who endure to give such an outstanding testimony to their faith that no one, Jesus says, will be able to refute it. The proclamation of the gospel will actually increase under the faithful faithful witness of those martyrs. And so not only will this persecution manage to bring the proclamation to the ends of the earth, but it would appear that it even manages to convince many of those who are persecuting the Christians to repent and believe in Christ. Revelation 12, for instance, seems to talk of a significant number of Jews who come to faith by the midpoint of the Great Tribulation, of their not only believing in the gospel, but of their even dying for it. Thus we see the persecutors instead becoming the persecuted. It's through this growing faith in Israel that Revelation 12 says that Satan is cast down from heaven, and when he is cast down, he comes with great wrath. This occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation when the Antichrist is finally empowered to achieve the global dominion he so ardently desires. For one reason or another, the relationship between Israel and the Antichrist break down at that point. Perhaps there's a rebellion in Israel. Perhaps there's an assassination attempt on the Antichrist as he journeys into Israel to take part in the northern campaign. It's not entirely clear. Whatever the case, he suddenly turns on Israel and begins to wage a campaign of war against them. He surrounds Jerusalem with an army built from a coalition of different nations. He captures the city. He slays the two witnesses of Revelation 11, which John says no one else could kill. And as a final coup de grace, he enters into the temple and proclaims himself to be a god. He is uttering incredible boasts and blasphemies, but by this point, people are starting to believe him. They're in awe of his power. He establishes a global religion organized around himself, and most of the world follows. The Jews who believe in Jesus at this time, they flee into the wilderness where they're protected by God for the remainder of the seven-year tribulation. The rest are faced with one of two options. Either they can renounce their faith and worship the Antichrist, in which case it would seem they're allowed to remain in Israel, or they can refuse and be consigned to suffer in exile for the remainder of those days. By this time, great cataclysms have already started to break out on the earth. They actually begin before the fall of Jerusalem, as God's anger against the treatment of His people reaches a fever pitch. In addition to the great world war spreading famine and death over a quarter of the earth's surface, there are great earthquakes and signs in the heavens. According to Revelation, a third of the sea creatures will even die in these opening cataclysms, and a third of all fresh water will turn bitter. And that's all before the Antichrist begins his reign of terror. That's actually when things get really bad. In fact, that's the point at which Jesus tells his disciples, run for the hills, do whatever you have to do to seek refuge, just get out of town when you see that happen. The reason he says this is because as great as the persecution of Christians was in the first half, it's only going to increase in the second Daniel says that at that time the Antichrist, quote, shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. As the suffering of believers increases, so does the wrath of God. Until finally, in one ultimate display of judgment, God pours out his wrath on the earth. 
Up to this point, we haven't talked much about that final display of wrath. But it's described in Revelation 16 in the form of seven bowls poured out upon the earth. In the first bowl, there are sores that come upon those who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. In the second, the sea becomes like blood and every sea creature across the face of the earth dies. In the third, the fresh waters of the earth are likewise turned to blood. And an angel shouts from heaven, and I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially he declares, God, you are just, for they have drunk the blood of the martyrs, and so you have given them blood to drink. In the fourth bowl, the sun is given power to scorch the people of the earth with fire. So there's intense heat to match this now dry and waterless landscape. In the fifth bowl, the lights go out. The earth is cast into utter darkness. In the sixth, the nations of the earth are drawn by the Antichrist to gather together for the battle of Armageddon. And in the seventh, the Christ comes back to judge the earth. His return is accompanied with unparalleled earthquakes and with hailstones about 100 pounds each, pelting the people of the earth in a barrage of heavenly cannon fire. This is indeed a day of darkness and great wrath. One can see how the prophet Amos could say, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went to a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? This is most definitely not a day to be anticipated. It is a day to be greatly feared. This is why there's this apparent silence on the journey from Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is leaving the temple in a a fit of anger mixed with sorrow over this final confrontation with the religious leaders and everything that that portends for the nation of Israel. The disciples, though, can't get over the splendor of the temple. And so when they have the audacity to comment on the beauty of the temple, Jesus turns to them and he says, Don't you get it? This is all coming down. There's not going to be one stone here left upon another. And at that point, the disciples apparently understand because they don't say a word from the temple up to the Mount of Olives. And even then, once they see their teacher perched there overlooking the city, only four of them apparently have the nerve to ask the question that they're all wondering about. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the the end of the age? They know what Jesus is talking about. This destruction is about the end. And so, as they consider the ramifications of that, there are just two questions that come to their mind. Number one, when will these things be? That is to say, when is this day of tribulation going to start? That's looking primarily to the second half, by the way, when Daniel says that the saints would be handed over to the the hand of the Antichrist. They're very curious about the start of that period of tribulation for obvious reasons. And then number two, they want to know What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That is, when will the tribulation end? These men are very concerned about the timing of these things because they can clearly perceive what it may mean for them. And they're terrified. It's why Jesus has to begin begin His answer in verse 6 by saying, See that you are not alarmed. They're scared. And for good reason, right? This is a scary time. The Bible says it's a scary time. That means it's scary, right? If the Bible says this is a day of terror, it is something to fear. 
So it's at this point that I imagine the question that everybody wants answered is, are we going to be a part of this? Is this something that we could experience? You see the terror of the Great Tribulation, and that's the most immediate question. Could this happen to us? And if you would have asked me that question six months ago, I would have said, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Now I have to be completely honest with you. I'm not so sure. In fact, if you really press me on it, I'd have to confess that I'd probably lean towards yes. I think it's a distinct possibility, if not a probability, that we could experience the events of the Great Tribulation, at least in part. And I know that that's probably a pretty big shock to several of you. So allow me to explain. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 describes an event that is in a word breathtaking. The Thessalonians are apparently concerned that their loved ones who have died before the return of Christ are going to miss out on the blessings of the kingdom. Paul explains why this won't happen in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, saying, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In short, Paul answers their fears, these people who are concerned that their loved ones who have died before Christ are going to miss out on the blessings of His kingdom. He answers their fears by saying that there's a moment coming when the archangel will cry out and the Lord will descend from heaven. And when He descends... He will not only gather the saints living on the earth up to Himself, but He'll even raise the dead in Christ and gather them to Himself too. Both the living and the dead will be caught up to greet Jesus in the air, and so, Paul explains, we will always be with the Lord. Once in Christ, we'll never be separated from Him. Where He is, there we will be as well. This event is known today as the rapture, which comes from the Latin rapio, rapio, which means to snatch away or carry off. The idea is that Jesus will snatch away His saints during the event known as the rapture. Clearly, this event is tied to both the resurrection and final glorification of believers. And so in other instances in the New Testament, Paul simply refers to it as the resurrection. Uh, For example, describing the resurrection, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 51-57, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Once again, Paul says that there are two groups. He says that in a moment, the dead will be raised imperishable there first, and then he says, and we shall be changed. Point is, you have the, two same, uh, the same two-step process, the dead being raised first, followed by the glorification of the living. Thus, the rapture and the resurrection of the saints, they're one and the same. The question is, when does this event occur? Historically, there have been three major positions on the subject. First, there's a position known as post-tribulationalism. This is the position that enjoys the most support among Christians both historically and across Christendom today. In this position, the rapture happens after the tribulation, hence the term post-tribulationalism. Now, to go back to our earlier discussion about the millennium, that can occur either before or after the millennium, depending on what your position is on the relationship between the day of the Lord and the millennium. However, I just note that most post-tribulationalists tend to be either post- or amillennial. That is to say, they believe the millennium precedes the day of the Lord in one form or another, and then there is a single resurrection of both the living and the dead. That's not to say that you can't believe in a premillennial return of Christ with a rapture at the end of the tribulation that precedes His return. It's just not a common thing. Uh, typically, this is a view associated with post and amillennials. Uh, and if you're curious about why that is, I can try to answer that tonight at 6. The second major position, though probably the least popular of these three, is a position known as mid-tribulationalism. Again, just as the name implies, this position believes that the rapture will occur at the midpoint of the tribulation, around the time the Antichrist sets up the abomination of desolation. There's, uh, there's uh, uh, various uh, modifications on this position as well, known as a, a pre-wrath rapture, for instance. This one uh, doesn't confine the rapture at the midpoint, but it still places it at some point in the tribulation, but before the bold judgments that I mentioned just a few moments ago. Advocates of this position typically place it sometime in the second half, but there are a few different opinions on the matter. Point is, both the mid-tribulation and the pre-wrath positions place the rapture at some point during the Great Tribulation. The third major position, which is incredibly popular among American evangelicals, is that of pre-tribulationalism. This position states that the rapture will occur before the Great Tribulation. What's notable about each of these positions is what they share in common. For example, both post- and mid-tribulationalism believe that the church will experience at least part of, if not all, of the Great Tribulation, whereas pre-tribulationalists believe the church will not experience any of it. But both pre- and mid-tribulationalists believe that the church will be transported away from the earth at the rapture in order to be spared a full experience of the wrath of God. This is different from post-tribulationalists who see the rapture primarily as an event where the saints greet the Lord in the air as He descends to the earth. So there's a very different understanding of the purpose of the rapture in these positions. Post-tribulationalists believe the rapture is really nothing more than a greeting, The saints are caught up in the air to meet Christ and then to descend with Him. Pre- and mid-tribulationalists believe that the purpose of the rapture is to deliver the saints away from the wrath that will occur on the earth at the end, even if they disagree over what portions of that wrath they'll be delivered from. Of these three positions, probably the easiest to eliminate is post-tribulationalism. 
That's easy to eliminate. The reason for this is because it can't easily account either for what Jesus says in places like John 14 or for the numerous examples in the New Testament that indicate an an expectation of an imminent return of Jesus. John 14, 1-3, Jesus comforts His disciples before His departure by saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to Myself, that where I am you may also be. There Jesus speaks of not only preparing a place in heaven, for the disciples, but of coming again and bringing them to Himself. He's he's comforting them with this hope. And I just don't see how that passage can fit into a post-tribulational model unless we try to somehow say that Jesus comes for us at our death, which seems strained, to say the least. A more logical conclusion is that Jesus is speaking of the rapture event when He will descend and bring His disciples to the place that He's prepared for them in heaven. Likewise, later in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is going to say, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You can see, Jesus compares his coming to that of a thief robbing a house. The point is that it's going to happen unexpectedly. That's actually a major theme of the last leg of the Olivet Discourse. It's all about preparation for the sudden and unexpected return of the Lord. And that doesn't make sense if Jesus is talking about His final coming in judgment. Because, I mean, Jesus gives clear indication of when that will happen. He starts with the apostasy. He works through the judgments in the first half, the abomination of desolation at the midpoint. And both Daniel and John make it pretty clear that the return will will occur exactly 1260 days after that point, after the abomination of desolation. And there's no way that you can say that they're speaking figuratively because it changes from 1,260 days in one setting to 42 months in another to three and a half years in another. They go out of their way to say it's going to be an actual three and a half year period before He will return. So it's kind of hard for Jesus to say He's going to come at an hour when no one expects if He's talking about His return in judgment because He's given very, a very specific frame of reference for that. Once the abomination of desolation is set up, there's a very clear countdown to the end. But if Jesus is referring to the rapture at that point of the discourse, which personally I believe He is, I think this is what He's talking about there in Matthew 24, I think He's talking about the rapture, then it makes a lot more sense. In other words, the disciples ask Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus gives them two answers. Because there are two different answers to that question. If they want to know when He will return in judgment to end the Great Tribulation, which is the primary thrust of their question, well, that's going to be preceded by apostasy, cataclysms on the earth and in the heavens, the abomination of desolation, and then finally the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven. But that's not the whole answer. There's another point at which he returns to gather his people to himself and deliver them from the wrath to come. And if they want to know when that will happen, well, he can't give them an answer to that question. It will happen without any signs to precede it. 
It is most thoroughly imminent. And because of that, they need to be ready for it to happen at any moment. There's just no way to account for this teaching under the post-trib position unless you want to say somehow that the tribulation is going to happen secretly, which seems to be the exact opposite of the main thrust of the Olivet Discourse, in addition to passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11, which says that we are not to let this day surprise us like a thief. We're supposed to be able to recognize the signs of that day when it occurs. So that would appear to be the teaching of the Olivet Discourse. There will be an unexpected return of Jesus for His saints that will precede His return in judgment, which will come with ample forewarning. And this seems to be the picture presented in passages like 2 Thessalonians 2 and 2 Timothy 3 as well. For example... Actually, not 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 2. For example, in 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, Paul speaks of how two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, have, quote, swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. And he says that by this, they have upset the faith of some. Now think about that for a minute. How could Hymenaeus and Philetus persuade people that the resurrection had already happened unless the common teaching in the church at that time was that the resurrection would precede the return of Jesus? I mean, otherwise it'd be easy to tell the difference, right? If the church expected the resurrection to occur with the return of Christ, then it'd be easy to refute Hymenaeus and Philetus. Has Jesus come back yet? No? Well, then we haven't missed the resurrection. It'd be that simple. But again, if the resurrection precedes the return of Jesus, then there could be a very real concern that one could miss the rapture and be left to face the unrestrained wrath of God. There's obviously more that that could be said here, but suffice to say, I don't think this position is convincing in the least. As popular as it is today, and as it has been throughout history, there's just too much going against the post-trib position in the Scripture. So if the post-trib position is wrong, which one is right? Until recently, I would have said it's the pre-tribulational one. After all, the pre-trib position accounts quite well for passages like John 14 and 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18. It also explains how Jesus' can, uh, Jesus' return can be at once accompanied by signs and yet unexpected, as it states in the Olivet Discourse. Additionally, there are statements like 1 Thessalonians 1.10, which speaks of the coming of the Son from heaven who, quote, delivers us from the wrath to come. And that seems to tie... A return of Christ and a return in the sky, of course, with a deliverance from divine wrath. That may not make a whole lot of sense with the post-trib position, but it makes a lot of sense with the pre-trib one, and most especially if you understand the whole period of the tribulation as an expression of the wrath of God. Pre-tribulationists also raise some interesting points when they note that you see the Greek word for church, which is ekklesia, mentioned 19 times. 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation, as Jesus addresses the churches of Asia Minor in anticipation of the coming judgment, and then the word doesn't occur again throughout the futuristic portions of Revelation. So there's almost 20 references to the church in the first three chapters of the book, and then in the next 19 chapters of the book that describes the future, it doesn't appear hardly at all, only once actually, and in a closing exhortation at the very end of the book. That's interesting, right? I mean, if the church is going to be involved in the events of the end, then why doesn't John plainly write about it in this spectacular uh, vision that he receives of the end? That's curious. 
Pre-tribulationalists will often point out as well that there is a distinction between the church and Israel. And when we examine the events of the tribulation, we can clearly see that the primary purpose of the tribulation relates to the nation of Israel. We've already explored this area in depth. The tribulation is called the day of Jacob's distress because its chief purpose is to discipline Israel to the point of repentance. And so the question is raised. Why why would the church be present in the tribulation if it's not about us? This seems like uh, to to at least provide a very strong theological basis for a pre-trib rapture if that's what the Scripture teaches. So there's a lot to commend to the pre-trib position. There's less, I think, to commend to the, to, to, uh, to the mid-trib position. After all, to argue for a mid-trib position would be to say that we could predict the time of the rapture, which is, again, the exact opposite of what Jesus says we can do in the Olivet Discourse. There going to, there's going to be intense persecution and signs on the earth and in the heavens that will show us that we are in the day of the Lord. We know from Daniel 9 that the Antichrist signs a treaty with Israel and breaks it at the midpoint. So assuming that the rapture occurs at the midpoint, it would be easy to calculate its coming by starting from the moment that the Antichrist forced this treaty upon Israel and counting forward. Now some would counter and they'd say, well, the scripture doesn't say we can't know the general time frame of Jesus' return, just a specific hour. But I don't, I, I don't find that argument very convincing. The whole point of Jesus' teaching on the subject seems to be that his coming will be completely and totally unexpected. So I can't go for a mid-trib position. However, as I've been looking into this concept more and more, I've come to the conclusion that there are some significant weaknesses in the pre-trib position as well. And the most significant of which is the fact that I don't think it can account, I don't think it can account for a plain, common-sense reading of the Olivet Discourse. I'm a firm believer, firm believer, in the grammatical historical method of interpretation. If you're unfamiliar with what that means, it's pretty simple. It means that the text means what the original author meant it to mean to the original audience. Basically, what did Paul mean to say when he wrote the book of Ephesians? That's the meaning of the text. That's pretty simple, right? There are no no hidden secondary meanings, no revelations from God that supply an additional meaning to the text other than what Paul or Moses or David intended to say. Just the original meaning as it was intended for the original audience. This isn't to say that authors won't occasionally use symbolic language, speak in simile and metaphor and the like. They will, and the biblical authors did. But the point is that when they did this, they used the common conventions of language so that their audience could understand their meaning when they wrote They didn't start using a word in a way that was never meant to be used before. They worked within the rules of the literary genres common to the day. In short, they wrote in order to be understood. They wrote in order to be understood. The original audience didn't need a special Bible decoder ring to interpret the text when they first received it. The text meant precisely what it appeared to say. What this means is that when we come to the Bible, one of the very basic questions that we have to ask ourselves whenever we interpret a text is, how would the original audience have interpreted the meaning of this text? If I were to put myself in their shoes, in their culture, their historical setting, their specific context, what is the most likely interpretation of the text? I'm a big believer in this method of interpretation. If you recall, this is even why I'd argue for a premillennial return of Christ. It's why I would argue for a distinction between the church and Israel. Well, when you place this passage, the Olivet Discourse, 
both in the historical setting of the original discourse, meaning when you put it in the context in which Jesus delivered it to his disciples, and when you put it in the historical setting of the Gospel of Matthew, meaning when you put it in the context in which Matthew delivered it to his original audience, in either case, I just don't see how the original audience could have interpreted this passage in any way other than with the expectation of participation in the Great Tribulation. Let me restate that. I I just don't see any way that either Jesus or Matthew intended to tell their audience that they would not endure the Tribulation. Quite the opposite, actually. The expectation here seems to be that they would endure it. Take the original setting of the discourse, Jesus speaking to his disciples. When Jesus says to the disciples, when they deliver you up to tribulation, and so when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, and if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, who do you think they thought he was talking to? I mean, can you really read that and think, well, the disciples obviously would have understood that he wasn't actually speaking to them as if they would be in the tribulation because they understood they'd be raptured. They'd realize that he really meant some other group of Christians who would come to faith after the tribulation began. That's a pretty big stretch, isn't it? Isn't the most common sense approach, the one that is most consistent with the grammatical historical hermeneutic, isn't it to take you to mean simply you? You, as in you, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, when these things happen to you, I think that's the most common sense approach. I feel like I'd be dishonest with the text if I didn't acknowledge that the disciples probably thought that Jesus was saying that they'd be in the tribulation when he said these things. That's the plain reading of the text. And and that would account for the disciples' expectation that they would actually be alive, or at least most of them would be, when the Lord came back, right? Many people have noted this. The disciples didn't seem to think that there was going to be a gap of 2,000 years before the return of Christ. And there's good reason for that. Jesus didn't talk to them that way. He spoke as if they'd be alive and present when it happened. That's exactly what we see here in the Olivet Discourse. But not only in regards to the rapture, but as it regards to the day of the Lord as well, Jesus spoke to them as if they'd be present in it. We have to assume that that's what they took away from the discussion. I don't see how they could have interpreted Jesus' words any other way. I mean, Jesus even gives them instructions about what to do in that time. He tells them how to respond to these events. When he reads the fear on their faces, he doesn't say to them, Listen, you guys, don't worry about this because you're not going to be a part of it. No, he says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Why not? Verse 6, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. That's way different than saying, don't worry because you're not destined for this. He certainly seems to imply with that statement that his disciples will have cause to worry at some point, just not yet, when they see those things. And lo and behold, that's exactly what we find later in the discourse. By the time we get to verse 15, Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountaintops. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Translation? That's when you need to be be concerned. 
That's when you need to be worried. That's when you need to run. When you see the abomination standing in the holy place, that's when you need to be worried. Because verse 14, that is the end. Again, that's a strange answer for Jesus to give his disciples if they're not going to endure this. I just don't see any other way they could have interpreted this message when he's giving them instructions about what they need to do when that day happens. The plain reading of this text, in this sense, indicates that the disciples will experience the tribulation. Now, look at this from the perspective of Matthew's readers as well. Consider, if you will, the conditions I have described over the past few weeks. And then consider what Matthew's readers would have thought as they read this. Many of the early conditions of the Great Tribulation were present in the first century. They were experiencing Jewish persecution. They were being handed over to the synagogues. They would eventually be persecuted for failing to burn incense to Caesar. They lived under the rule of the last great empire described in Daniel. Rome was alive and thriving. It sure looked like someone like a Nero could end up being the fulfillment of the Antichrist prophecies at any moment. In fact, did you know, did you know that when the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, the Christians in the area fled. They escaped the ensuing destruction of that city. Listen, they didn't didn't flee because they believed in a pre-tribulational rapture. They fled because they fully believed that they were seeing the events described in the Olivet Discourse transpire before their very eyes. They believed they were in the day of the Lord, and so they listened to Jesus' instruction, and they fled from Jerusalem while the rest of Israel stayed and suffered extreme devastation at the hands of the invading Roman armies. Those early Christians believed that the day of the Lord was at hand. And they believed that because all the conditions for it were obviously present at that time. Now, look again at verses 9 to 14 and ask yourself, ask yourself, if I were a Jewish Christian living at this time, receiving this gospel from Matthew, what would I think, what would I think that Matthew is trying to tell me? Is he telling me that I don't have to worry about this period of persecution that will occur during the first half of the tribulation because I'll be raptured out of it? No, obviously not. The clear application of this passage is endure. Many will fall away, Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The point, obviously, is not an escape from the tribulation, but a need to persevere through it. There's just no other way to read that passage. It's the plain meaning of the text for those early readers suffering conditions such as they were. So listen, if we're, if we're going to use, if we're going to use the grammatical historical method to say there must be a literal millennial reign of Jesus on the earth over restored national Israel, and we're going to say this because the Jews wouldn't have understood the plain read teaching of Scripture any other way then I think we must also conclude that the Olivet Discourse teaches that Christians alive today can enter the tribulation as well. It's the consistent application of that method of interpretation. But it's not only the Olivet Discourse that leans this way. Paul actually implies the exact same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2. Go ahead and turn there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There's general agreement that when Paul writes 2 Thessalonians, someone has written the Thessalonians to the effect 
that not only has the day of the Lord come, but that the resurrection has taken place. So this is like the false teaching committed by Hymenaeus and Philetus over in 2 Timothy 2. They also said that the resurrection had happened. We know this is taking place in Thessalonica as well, based on 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-2, where Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Clearly, from verse 2, we can see that there are some saying that the day of the Lord has come. However, in verse 1, there seems to be some concern about, quote, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him. That's an apparent reference to the rapture. The idea isn't just that the day of the Lord has come, but that in its coming, the Thessalonians have missed the rapture as well. It's not uncommon for the pre-tribulationalists to seize this point and say, see, this must indicate a pre-trib rapture since the Thessalonians think the coming of the day of the Lord indicates they've missed the rapture. That means they think the rapture comes first, followed by the day of the Lord. Not so fast. You see, you know what's interesting about this passage? Number one, the Thessalonians think, the Thessalonians think Paul has written to them after the beginning of the day of the Lord. Look at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, uh, or a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That's how this false teaching is spreading. It claims to be the teaching of Paul himself. Now let that sink in for a minute. The Thessalonians think that they're getting a letter from Paul after the beginning of the day of the Lord. How can that be? I mean, whatever they may think about their own spiritual condition, surely they don't think that someone as eminent as Paul has missed the rapture, right? That wouldn't make any sense at all. I mean, if if the Apostle Paul isn't saved, then no one is, right? Well, clearly, if Paul did teach a pre-tribulational rapture, then he obviously hadn't taught it to them, because otherwise, they certainly wouldn't be swayed by a letter from Paul saying that the day of the Lord has already come. They would naturally assume that Paul would participate in the rapture. So if Paul taught a pre-trib rapture, then however this false teaching would infiltrate the church, it most certainly couldn't have come from a letter claiming to be written by Paul after the beginning of the day of the Lord. And it would seem strange to think that Paul simply hadn't taught the Thessalonians about the rapture by this point. After all, when Paul starts running through the list of events that will occur during the tribulation, he remarks in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? He had obviously already provided them with a fairly comprehensive account of the tribulation. So this is very curious. This is very curious that the Thessalonians believed they were getting a letter from Paul after the day of the Lord has come. Because it seems to indicate that they expected that no less than the Apostle Paul himself would participate in that event. You know what else is interesting about this passage? Number two, Paul doesn't calm their fears by saying, you're not destined for the rapture. He doesn't say to them, guys, why are you worried about the day of the Lord? Don't you remember what I told you about the rapture? The church isn't going to participate in this. 
But you may say, well, well, but Ryan, perhaps they think this means that they're not Christians. Perhaps they're concerned that what this reveals is that their faith was false and they're destined for God's wrath. The problem with this line of thinking is that if this were the case, if this were the case, then Paul's answer wouldn't ease their fears. You look down at verse 3, and Paul says, Paul says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. It may also be translated, has not come. That day either will not come or has not come, unless. And then he proceeds to provide a sequence of events for the day of the Lord. The idea is that you can't be in the day of the Lord unless these things are taking place. Well, if the resurrection, think about this, if the resurrection precedes the day of the Lord, then how is this of any comfort to the Thessalonians? After all, after all, perhaps the resurrection has happened, and yet the beginning of these things has not happened yet. There's nothing saying that these events are going to all start simultaneously with the rapture, or they're even going to be able to identify them all right away. In fact, most pre-tribulationists, most pre-tribulationists will say that there is a distinct time gap between the rapture and the beginning of the day of the Lord. Well, if that's the case, then it's more than possible to miss the resurrection and yet not see any of the events that Paul describes in the rest of chapter 2. So his answer would be of no comfort. You can miss the resurrection and still not recognize the day of the Lord yet. If, however, the resurrection takes place during the day of the Lord, that's quite different. Then the Thessalonians can look around and say, has the apostasy taken place yet? No. At least I don't think so. What about the abomination of desolation? Well, that's definitely not. Well, good. That means that we haven't missed the resurrection because no day of the Lord, no resurrection. So we have nothing to be worried about. This makes a lot more sense of this passage, does it not? I, I think so. I look at 2 Thessalonians 2, and it would appear to me that Paul did not teach a pre-tribulational rapture. By the way, this is one aspect in which I, I think the pre-trib argument misses the boat. It's often said by pre-tribulationalists, the New Testament never tells Christians to look for the coming of the Antichrist. The expectation is always for the sudden appearance of Jesus. And I can agree that this was certainly what Christians looked forward to, They certainly didn't hope in the coming of the Antichrist. And I can even agree that they expected the imminent return of Jesus. But I don't think we can say that they were never told to look for the coming of the Antichrist. The Olivet Discourse sure seemed to tell Christians how to identify the arrival of the Antichrist, as does 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And from this I think we can determine that they did think it was possible to witness His coming. So I, I think we must conclude... I think we must conclude that the New Testament allows for the possibility of the church's inclusion in the tribulation. And yet it also, it also teaches the possibility of an imminent return of Jesus. Again, we'll talk about this in greater detail later in the Olivet Discourse, but again, Jesus gives two answers to the question, what shall be the sign of your coming? In one answer, he refers to his final return at the end when he comes in judgment. That coming will be accompanied by signs and with ample forewarning, The other refers to his return before that to collect his saints and carry them off to heaven. He he says that that coming can happen at any time without forewarning. So we have to come to a position that allows for both, both the church's participation in the tribulation and the imminent return of Jesus. And I think the position that best allows for this is not the concept of a pre-tribulational rapture, 
nor even a mid-tribulational or pre-wrath rapture. Rather, I think the position that best accounts for all the biblical evidence is what I would call an imminent rapture. An imminent rapture. In short, I don't, I don't think the New Testament tells us precisely when the rapture will occur. It says it can happen at any moment. Can that be now, before the tribulation? Yes, absolutely. I think it could be now, before the tribulation. Could it be later, after the beginning of the tribulation? Again, I think the answer is yes. I don't think the Scripture tells us. I tend to think that the evidence probably tilts towards an intra-tribulational rapture, so something during, during the tribulation, but the expectation of an imminent return of Jesus forces me to conclude that it can certainly happen before then as well. So I, just, I think we just don't know. And that seems to be consistent with the point of Jesus' teaching. The idea that he seems to be driving across later in the discourse is simply, be ready. Be ready. It's less you can know when this is going to happen, and more, be sober and be ready on all accounts because you don't know when it's going to occur. So that's the position I'm compelled to take. I believe the Bible teaches the concept of an imminent rapture. What this means is that the church can experience the events described here in verses 9 to 14. But that makes sense, doesn't it? One of the objections that that pre-tribulationists make against any concept of of an intra-tribulational rapture is the idea that the tribulation has primarily to do with the discipline and conversion of Israel. And so it's reason that the church won't be part of the tribulation because because the purpose of the tribulation isn't really about us. True, the church is not the point of the tribulation. But it certainly makes sense that it's the means. Go back to what we talked about last week concerning the conditions of the tribulation. We said that during that time, the gospel is going to be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And we said that Israel is going to come to faith during this gospel proclamation. Look, when you look at the New Testament teaching on the church, doesn't that describe... The church's purpose down to the T. The church was raised up because Israel failed in its mission. Jesus commissioned his disciples to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. Likewise, Paul explains in Romans 11 that a major purpose of the church, a major purpose of the church is to bring Israel to repentance. So why, why then, when the very fulfillment of these missions is about to come about, why would God remove the instrument that He designed for that purpose? That would be like a basketball coach sitting his star player in the last two minutes of a hotly contested playoff game. It just doesn't make any sense. Listen, I believe, I believe a dispensational view of the church should actually lead us to expect the church's inclusion in the Great Tribulation, not demand its exclusion. Pre-tribulationists will say, but why would God have us endure the tribulation, this time of tremendous wrath when the blood of Christ covers our sins, to which I would say in return, why would God have Christians die a slow and agonizing death as cancer eats away at their body? Why would He have Christian children orphaned by natural disasters or car accidents? The fact is, God allows Christians to suffer all the time. And we understand that it's not because He intends to punish us. Rather, we know that somehow He means for that suffering to come about for our good. Why would that be any different during the Great Tribulation? And this is where I think we really have something to gain from this understanding of the rapture. Look, I realize that there are several of you here today that may disagree with what I'm saying. 
I hope you understand, I don't really have anything to gain by taking this position. If anything, I only have something to lose because I risk alienating those of you who do believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. This certainly isn't a very appealing position. I think we'd all much rather think that we aren't going to experience these things. I think that's probably just part of our culture, right? I mean, we're a privileged people. And so it's natural for us to expect to be bumped up into first class when it comes to the Great Tribulation. Not to have to sit back and coach with all the rest of the riffraff. You know? But understand, my job isn't to get up here and gain your approval by proclaiming peace, peace when there is no peace. My job is to tell you what I think the Bible says regardless of whether it's popular or not. And that's what I'm trying to do here this morning. That being said, I hope you understand that nothing of what is important about pre-tribulationalism is lost by the position I'm telling you here this morning. After all, an imminent rapture still means that we must be ready for the Lord's return at any time. It only adds the stipulation that we may very well experience the Great Tribulation as well. And there's much to gain from that stipulation. I think once you realize... I think once you realize that you might soon endure the events of the tribulation, it does several things. First, I think it forces you, it forces you to come to terms with the purpose that God has for suffering and embrace it. You have to wrestle with the fact that God will allow His children to experience sometimes incredible agony while at the same time still loving them. And the answers that you come to as you wrestle through that will prove beneficial to your experience of many other pre-tribulational trials. Second, I think this position sobers your thoughts and it reorients your priorities around the kingdom of heaven. There's no way that you can study this event without asking yourself, will I be ready for it? Will I endure And on one hand, this is a question we shouldn't be preoccupied with. After all, Jesus clearly indicates that those who endure the Great Tribulation will only endure by the strength that God supplies. He even discourages the disciples from preparing for it and instead challenges them to embrace the trials of that day by faith. But on the other hand, this concept snaps us out of our apathy by reminding us that this is not peacetime. We are in a constant state of spiritual warfare. And while there may be a temporary ceasefire as it relates to persecution, that can end at any moment. We are to live on high alert and to prioritize our lives accordingly. Third, I think this doctrine humbles us. And it enables us to better identify with the plight being suffered by the church in other parts of the world even today. I think understanding that you are not immune to great persecution, forces you to grapple with the gravity of suffering for Christ because it's personal. And as you consider how hard it must be to endure such suffering, it produces empathy for Christian brothers and sisters who are enjoying, or not enjoying, experiencing the many tribulations of this world right now. Fourth, I think this doctrine encourages us to live boldly for Christ because it reminds us in the words of Paul, that everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Rejection is just a part of the territory. Suffering is to be expected. So don't expect to avoid suffering. Instead, learn to persevere in faithfulness through it. It's simply part of what it means to be a Christian. What this added stipulation should not produce, what it should not produce, is fear. 
Now, should it encourage you to run the course with great urgency and faithfulness, since it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved? Sure, it produces a sanctifying sobriety in that sense. And that seems to be the sense in which Jesus applies this doctrine in today's passage. It's an encouragement to strive for faithfulness and endure in light of the wrath to come. But this does not mean that we should fear the tribulation. We fear not the tribulation, but the God who orchestrates it. You look at the instructions that Jesus gives in the accounts of the Olivet Discourse provided in Mark 13 and Luke 21, and it's clear that we are not to fear the arrival of the Great Tribulation. And the reason is not because of our faithfulness or anything of that sort, but because God will provide for us and sustain us through it. This, I think, perhaps is the greatest contribution of all from this doctrine. This doctrine forces us, in in the face of such naturally terrifying prospects, to cast our faith on God and completely depend on Him for the strength to endure such severe trials. We're forced to trust that, as horrific as the tribulation sounds, God would not have us endure it for no purpose. He must have a reason. He will bring us through it and deliver us from it. In short, the ultimate contribution of this doctrine is, I think, the fact that it forces us to grow in faith. It pushes us to trust the plans and purposes of God, to even lean on Him for strength to endure in the midst of the most severe trials. And that mindset, my friends, will benefit you far, far outside the confines of the Great Tribulation. That will benefit you in every aspect of your Christian life. Tonight we'll continue our discussion of the rapture and its application for the Christian at 6 o'clock. If you still have any unanswered questions, I'd be more than happy to try to answer them then. In the meantime, let's close with prayer.